Welcome to the Nicholas Natale Show. If you've been listening to the podcast for any period of time, you're going to know that this is episode number 50. The guest, Jeremy Schneider, retired at 36, sold his tech company for $5 million, and he's going to teach us exactly how to become a millionaire. This guy's a legend. This week's riddle, why was the broom late? Tune into the end of the podcast and you can get the answer. Celebrate the 50th episode with us and leave a five-star review for your chance to become the reviewer of the week and help us keep going another 50 episodes Yes, another 50. We're going to do it. You could just donate 99 cents, as low as that. Links are in the show notes because I'm not going to embarrass myself reading that. And of course, we had to go all out for the 50th episode. So we got some new intro music brought to you by the Nova Effect. They're a San Diego rap duo on the rise. As always, I'm the intern. You're the listener. This is Nick. show i am your host nicholas natalie today we have a very special guest jeremy schneider season's greetings season's i know it's what you said all years it's like the last guy said that it was a COVID season it seems like is august any season at all you know if it is it's got me rattled whatever season it is i'm shooken up season that's true very true let's jump into it let's dive head first right in okay track star Come on. Uh, yeah. I like track because, you know, you just always put the word star at the end. You know, if you were like a golf athlete, you'd be like, oh, you're a golf player or something. But track, it's always star. You kind of get that for free if you're just like even moderately good at track. So, yeah, I was a track star. Nice. You got the medals came with it, just track star. Because I guess golf, you get golfer. Baseball. Yeah, you're really, you're player. right. But it's like yeah. track, for some reason, it comes with this like accolades. Like it must be a star. Throw it on the resume. You oh. ran. You okay? So you ran the four hundred and you ran the eight hundred. You ran the four hundred in a with a forty six point eight in forty six point eight seconds. So I googled that because I have no clue about track or how if that's fast or not fast. I imagine it has to be pretty fast since University of Michigan scholarship. But the world record. If this is true, is forty three seconds. Are you really that close? Uh, I mean, so it's all relative, right? Um, it sounds close to someone who can run it, and like you know, if if you just take someone off the street and t- tell them to run a half a mi- or a quarter mile as fast as they can, it would take them about a minute and a half or something. A minute and a half would be like six minute mile pace, and so I think a normal, reasonably healthy person could probably keep up six minute mile pace for. And so, yeah, when you consider not, you compare 90 seconds to 46 and then 46 to 43, um, 46 and 43 look pretty close. But like when you look at it, like a logarithmic scale of like the difference in the performance, uh, it's not even close. You know, it's like it, like 46 is like a pretty solid college time. You know, you might like mm-hmm. top finish top 
top 10 in the Big Ten or something like that. You wouldn't even go to nationals with that in college. And then you definitely wouldn't even be close to making like Olympics or anything like that. And so, you know, and, and it really like I was 46.8, not 46.0 and the world record is 43. <laughs> and, you know, the, you know, winner at the Olympics is usually 43, 44. And so when you count like one, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000, Four thousand, and then I finish. Like those yeah. guys already are taking their shoes off and doing interviews and stuff, and I'm still like on the track, and that's that's a long time when the whole race is only 40, 44 seconds. You know? Yeah, that's very true. I did run cross country in high school, so I mean, nice. I kind of got an idea, <laughs> not even close. But um, I imagine like sh- shedding a whole second, like training wise, is insanely difficult, right? To like, what would you say, like? amount of training per one second shredded off of your time well it gets it gets like infinitely higher with each second right so to go from one you know 90 seconds to 89 you just basically have to like try it again but to go from like 45 to 44 like maybe your body's not capable of that you know and, and 43 to 42 no one no one in history has ever done it so um you know could i have run 45 maybe if i like you know was perfect on my diet and perfect on my strength training and you know but also like there's injuries and you know track is uh like this high impact sport and so you if you train yourself to injury then you can't run it at all and so um yeah i don't know it's a lot of work and and, and that level there's also just built-in talent that you either you have it or you don't you know that's very true and you were studying a tough major i'm pretty sure was it computer science the whole way through bachelor's and master's? Technically, I, you done so. So, listeners out there, can I tell them that you, you <laughs> sent me an email before this before this podcast, and it was like the most comprehensive, like pre-podcast interview or e- email I've ever gotten, and it was amazing. I was like, this is stuff that like I don't even know that like I have to like go back and look up somehow that I don't even know how I would look it up. But anyway, um, yeah. So, but since you're a man of detail. Uh, my, my undergrad was in computer engineering, technically, mm-hmm. which is kind of like a hybrid between computer science and electrical engineering. And then my master's degree was in computer science. But practically speaking, it was all computer science throughout. Um, and yeah, that's atypical for um, athletes. You know, even even like non-football players, you don't see a lot of athletes in in the difficult engineering majors. And so, yeah, and like, at, like look, now as like a 39-year-old with like, mountains of time on my hand looking back at like 20 year old version of me where i was trying to like compete at the highest like athletic ability of my entire life you know go get into grad school like finish Mm -hmm. all these classes like get summer internships i was like the president of an honor society like the amount of like you know time and effort that you expect these like college and high school students to put in is is pretty insane and so it's Life is definitely you know easier now for better or for worse. It's crazy. I, I think back on that too, and I'm like, how do how do young people even fit all of that stuff into? Yeah. It's like I, I just feel like I remember like I I was not an athlete in college whatsoever, but I was engineering, and I would go to the gym and just like go sweaty to class. Like I feel like those are the type of things that like college students can get away with like cramming cramming yeah. into their schedule. You have um, to. You got to if you want to do it. But staying with young Jeremy, got to talk about the article, okay. which I will I will give you the benefit of the doubt. You said this when you were 19. It's a different time. You're, you're a different person. <laughs> the article says, um, I don't I have no clue what they're asking you about. But you said um, when you graduate, I'll 
I'm going to retire at 25. I'll work for three years, make my millions, and travel the world. My question is, because I don't know much about the dot-com boom, but I feel like those words are precedented on the fact that the boom is going to happen for you, too. Right. Well, yeah. So it sounds incredibly douchey. And uh, I, I was like, you know, I, partially I was like a shy little like 19 year old who was like still trying to figure things out. But also like that was probably in 1999. And, you know, if you like read about the dot com boom, that was like at the peak craziness. And we're kind of at another dot com boom, when, although we don't call it that now. But like, you know, you see, you know, uh, valuations of like tesla and amazon and apple like you know tech is just going crazy and it was kind of true back then but back back then there was really like nothing to back it up except for speculation like Mm -hmm. and now for sure with like tesla it's a lot of speculation but now we're like okay well amazon is definitely selling a lot of stuff but before there's these companies where you just like have an idea like some some you know vc venture capitalist just throws 10 million dollars at you they just ask you to burn it as fast as possible because they don't want to be like out burn rated by someone else. And so I was like, you know, wow. a 19 year old who's like studying computer science at like a good university who's like watching this go on around him. I'm like, yeah, three years is a ton of time to make five million <laughs> bucks or whatever, you know. Um, and to be fair, of course, I was like a young little douchebag. So um, I've got more perspective now. Yeah. Did you? Uh, oh, I don't want to skip. I don't want to skip because I actually I'm super curious if you got investors when you came out of college. But no, we won't go there. We won't go there. Okay. You're studying. You're studying um, computer engineering, and then you had two summer internships at Microsoft during this boom. What was Microsoft like? Was it was it what I think of it is today? Like this massive powerhouse. So, yeah, I mean, I think Microsoft is interesting because, like, in the 80s, they were kind of, like, the first really big software company. And in the, you know, the 80s, they were small, and Bill Gates was, like, a really big part of, like, the development team. And they just had this, like, like enormous growth and came out with, like, Windows. And then suddenly, you know, in the course of 10 years, you went from, like, not really having software because there weren't really, like, desktop computers to, like, every computer on the face of the planet running software that this like one kid wrote basically. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so it definitely like went through periods and, and that period was crazy. But then like when I, when I joined, like, I, I think I interned there and I think you actually knew, see, this is one of those things like, how did he know? I'd have to think really hard. So yeah, apparently according to your email, I interned there in 2002, 2003, you know, it was now like the biggest tech company in the world. It was oh, wow. like the most, you know, sought after, um, it still is to this day. It's the biggest company in the world, period, today, I think, or at least it like rotates with Amazon and Apple. Um, and it, uh, yeah, it was like for sure. And this was like pre Amazon, pre Google, pre Facebook. It was like the, like, the place. Yeah, the place to work if you're like a kid studying computer science. And they had tons of money. They came in and they, they were recruiting too. They came to campus and were like, wooing us with like they're just they're like you know there's like a piece like like a nicely boxed piece of microsoft software with like windows or you know office or whatever that, that would retail for like 500 dollars, and they would just like Whoa. bring like 80 of them and like pass them out to like every kid in our honor society and just, and just wow. you know it's like i remember like sitting there i was like i think i was like that's fifty thousand dollars worth of software oh. or something that they're just like passing out because like they had unlimited money and that cost yeah. them nothing because they make it and they they were trying to they were trying to recruit us and so um, yeah, so I got two internships there. I feel like I was super lucky. It was, um, you know, it was big and 
a little bit sterile, like, you know, everyone had their own office and, um, you know, it was in Redmond, which is like this town outside of Seattle where it's basically all Microsoft campuses. Um, and there's a bunch of dudes and like everyone's an engineer and they just want you to program all day. And, um, it wasn't really totally my style, which is why I didn't work there full time, but it was an incredible experience, a great company. They were very nice. I don't like fault them for anything. I watched a few episodes of the documentary on Bill Gates on Netflix. And that's funny that you mentioned the culture is very like sit down and pro like program. Cause I like in the documentary, they talk about how Bill Gates was the guy that would just sit there for 20 hours and just crank out code, code after code. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, it's a different cultural experience. What what were you leaning toward more, people-oriented as well as brain? Yeah, I, I feel like I had this metaphor for it when I was there, and it's I don't really have a better one for it now, but I felt like I was like a piano and they just wanted me to play like one note all day. And, oh, you know, they're like, mm. play C sharp, like just sit down, write computer code in this like very specific way. And I don't blame them because they had like 40,000 employees or something and they don't need everyone doing everything. Like they don't need me like giving my, you know, they don't need intern Jeremy giving his thoughts on marketing <laughs> or whatever, or like making sales calls or, you know, and so, and while I think I was a talented programmer and pretty good at it, um, I just, didn't really like doing it all day. And I didn't like the idea of having my, you know, big changes in my level of effort and production have like little changes in my, mm. um, like compensation, not to yeah. say that you couldn't claw your way up the corporate ladder at, at Microsoft, but, you know, but also I knew that we were like in the dot com boom and like people can start companies and you have like unlimited upside potential. And so, um, that's what I decided to do. That's fair. I resonate with the not wanting to program all day. I so my degree is in software engineering, but my I'm I imagine you were a much more proficient programmer than I was cuz I was always wanting to like be the guy that wrote the requirements for <laughs> for, oh, for the, the program. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was I was big on the PM side whenever we got to do projects. Nice. Um but you're at Microsoft and you get to meet the man himself. What'd you think? What'd you think of shaking hands with Bill Gates? Yeah, I don't, I don't think I actually shook his hand. I think I was standing right next to him and talked to him. Um, I don't That's know. Pretty just, sweet. Yeah, it's good enough. Um, but yeah, there's a uh, intern bar. I don't think I've ever told this story publicly at least before. There's an intern barbecue um, every summer, and they only invite interns. You know, there's a lot of interns at Microsoft this time, and so just to not overwhelm Bill Gates's house, they they only invite like graduating interns. And nice. I, I like heard this through the grapevine, but like at one point during the um, summer, I get this like very like cryptic email from the HR person saying, you know, what's your graduation date? And it could have been for any reason, but I was like, I bet this is barbecue related. So I kind of like <laughs> a little bit coyly said my like undergrad graduation date with like full knowledge that I was also going to like go directly into grad school. And so yeah. I just, uh, a lie of omission perhaps, but I, I said my like more, more, more like upcoming graduation date. And then sure enough, I got an intern, I got an invite to the intern barbecue at Bill Gates's house. Uh, it was a very, very nice house. It's like right on Lake Washington, I think that's called, like right that separates Seattle from like the the east side of uh, the suburbs. Um, uh, his, my memory is his house was kind of like built into this like big mountain hill thing. And whatever we walked through was like not like where his kids were and stuff. And so 
I saw very little of it. And, and his, and the barbecue was like in his backyard, which was like overlooking the lake. So it was almost just like being at a park or something, but yeah, he, <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. There's like food and catering and beer and everything you could want. And, and a bunch of like, you know, a bunch of people who had worked there since the eighties who were, I assume like billionaires known right or whatever. Yeah. And, and then Bill just saunters out like you know, 30 or 45 minutes in. And, and the first year actually, like people kind of swarmed him and I was like, uh, that's kind of lame. I don't want to like swarm him. He's not like a celebrity or whatever. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I guess he is. Um, and so I kind of like, you know, overheard some stuff, but then, but then I kind of, then like I left for the summer and didn't really like talk to him and I kind of regretted Ooh, it. Yeah. But luckily for me, I got a rare double <laughs> invite to the intern barbecue because the following summer, which I offered also interns at Microsoft, when I got that same email, I was like, I'm graduating this upcoming year once again and got a second invite. So I feel like I'm one of the few people who's gone to two barbecues at his house um, other than like the high level employees. Um, and then that time he walked out and like no one was like rushing over to him. So I walked over to him and started a conversation and told me at a nice house and we talked about his cars and his driving record and some other weird stuff yeah. wow his driving record does he ha- does he have a good one or a poor one uh no he doesn't have a good one so i uh I'm, i think this is all common knowledge i assume he doesn't mind sharing it but he gave a uh a, a tip on having a driver's license which is you should always have a driver's license in two different states at a time so you'd have like a, a california license and an arizona license because he used to live in Arizona and then moved the company to Seattle. And mm-hmm. when he was like, he was, he was like driving up the freeways, he would drive like 150 miles per hour. Oh my and, gosh. And then, and when you drive that fast, like they take your license away. Yeah. So then, and it's very hard to get a license once your license has been sus- suspended. But if you have like a valid license in a second state, then you can go use that <laughs> license to get like, uh, you know, so he loses his Arizona license, uses his California license to get an Oregon license etc etc and the uh the the um cycle continues um i think i asked him if he had really high uh, insurance rates and he said that he is (laughs) self-insured i respect that i respect that answer what a what a genius move i've never considered that that makes me feel like i have 50 tries i have 50 (laughs) tries until (laughs) as long as you have a backup to start with then you can you can keep going although i I assume maybe like the logistics of getting an alaska driver's license are more difficult if you don't (laughs) yeah let me fly out to juno real quick just to see if i can pass their driving test exactly Okay, you meet Bill Gates, and then you're like, see you later, Microsoft. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm starting my own company, um, which I think is a, it was a really good idea. Um, Rentlinks is, like, I looked it up. I, I think, like, the ability for people that want to advertise, you should probably explain it. I don't want to okay. explain <laughs> Well, thanks. And uh, I guess just for a bit of context, I was now 21 or 22 and graduating with my master's degree in computer science and I was dating a girl who still lived in Ann Arbor, my college town, and I didn't want to go back to Microsoft. And I think if I wasn't dating this girl, I probably would have like joined the Peace Corps or done something crazy that you can only oh, really wow. get, get away with when you're 22. But I wanted to stay near her for that reason. And so I felt like, well, I don't want to get a real job. I can't really leave and do something crazy. And so I guess I'm going to start a company. And that's what I did. And so and I didn't have a really good idea. And so when people like ask me about it, they're like, oh, like even back then, like when I would get interviewed, like for like, you know, for being a kid starting a company, they'd 
there'd be like these stories that crop up where like, oh, you had this like vision of this like future of I had a dream housing advertising. And I was like, that's not what happened at all. Like it was just so so what the so what the business was that it became was um, a rental housing listing website. So if you're a renter and you want to look for an apartment, you could go to Zillow or Craigslist or apartments.com or apartment guide or rentals.com. There's like 50 of these different sites that renters can go to to search for an apartment. But right. it presents a problem for landlords who want to advertise widely and keep their listings updated on all these different sites and have their rents updated on all these different sites. So I created a site where you could post to it once and automatically post, syndicate, list on all these different sites. If you had a photo, change the rent, update the description, all those different sites automatically update. And then all the leads from the renters, phone calls, emails come directly back to the property manager. And so when you know, that was like the 30 second elevator pitch I just gave, but the path to get there was like five years of like doing really stupid shit that like didn't work for a long time. Um, and five years is a long time, you know, when you, that's a long like, time. Yeah. Yeah. When it's not working for five years in a row, like it doesn't feel that great. So what, what did it start out? And then what was the original idea and what was all the dumb stuff you had to do in between? So it started out as something called Hercules Solutions. And don't you own a software company too, don't you? Or you I do. That's why I'm so curious. I... Okay. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm about to knock your business model because I think that because it was kind of similar to my original business model and but maybe it might be valuable to you. I don't know. Um, so yeah, it was originally called it was originally called Hercules Solutions. And I was a software developer, and so I was like, I will just sell software development yeah and i you know had a terrible looking website and if people want to you know buy software like have me build a website or whatever i would do it for them and i put up google ads that said affordable custom software that was like my tagline um and i was like a decent programmer and a hustler so i thought i could like make a living and um you know and i got a little bit of business like this and it wasn't really successful because like you know the people you know, who wanted the thing that I was selling, like didn't really know what it was called. They were looking for like a, you know, a ready to go package solution or whatever, like off the shelf. And then the people who hired me had like really grossly like misconstrued expectations of like how difficult software is and how expensive it is and how time consuming it is and that stuff. And so, you know, and, and, you know, I made a little bit of money that way. Like, you know, one, one that jobs uh, jumped to mind is a guy found me with a, through a Google ad and he had the domain name K A R B I D carbid.com. And he's like, build me the eBay of cars. Uh, wow. and so I did. <laughs> and like, I actually like, I was like a, like a hustling, like hustling little developer back then. Yeah. And like in the course of like a month or something, I basically built him the eBay of cars and people could like create accounts and post cars and photo galleries and bid and, and, uh, check out. And, and, and then he kind of learned, you know, and I was too young and naive to like, know that this thing was doomed to fail because this guy didn't even know what he was getting himself into, but right. he had the hard time of learning, which is like, even if you can get someone who's like providing way too much value for what he paid for, it still is going to fail because he doesn't know how to build the rest of the business around it, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, so I was just doing that random custom software stuff. And then I eventually sold a website to a landlord of like a former landlord of mine, which ended up being a pretty easy sale. And so I was like, Oh, I'll just like sell landlord websites. Then at least it's like, feels more, you got like, a niche, you got a thing. Yeah, exactly. It feels like a niche. It feels like a purposeful thing that someone would want to buy. Yeah. And then just like, it was kind of a few years of that where I ended up having a bunch of landlord websites and I had a bunch of landlord data and they didn't really 
there was the, that was kind of the end of it. And I was like, well, if I got all this data, maybe I can give them another service, which is to post it to all these websites. Um, and then that's kind of the idea came about. Wow, it came to be. That's nice. That makes me feel much better than you waking up one day and just being like, wham. Which I which I know it that's never how it goes, <laughs> but yeah. we all like to romanticize. Yeah, so for the past year, uh, <laughs> we've been trying to do just that. Of yeah. Find people to make websites for and develop their software. And as of like Friday, we've we are we're scrapping it and we're gonna try to make a product because I just I I think probably all the things you experience about the hassle of it were just like uh, ran over our heads with this this hassle. Uh, uh, I mean, good for you. And I you know I think that's that's the exact same conclusion I came to. You should have asked me a year ago or whatever. I could have saved the time. <laughs> but but I think you know I think there's tons of opportunity out there if you build a product you know um and i and it's not easy for sure but if you're a talented crew of like software developers or or product creators or whatever and you find a space where something kind of sucks mm-hmm. and you just do the exact same thing and a little bit better mm-hmm. like you can suddenly have this like massive business um and and it's going to work so much better than what, the, what you have been doing if you like sell a thing you know people want to buy the finished thing if you sell a thing that people want and you're like hey it's like this but better or we're doing a little bit differently or it's just faster or it's better on mobile or whatever the tweak is like suddenly you're going to be selling something that people want and you know you're going to wake up one day and click refresh on your phone and you're going to be like oh shit we just made ten thousand dollars from people buying overnight and that's like when you've really you know found something good that's the dream i'm i'm scheming on that day because yeah i don't know um like when somebody wants this piece of software, they want it, and then they want it this way, but then they want it that way. And then they, but that's besides the point. So you have this good idea, and it comes to fruition. How do you even get it off the ground, though? Because I think you can have a great product, and it's still just crashing to the ground. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think when I was starting off kind of right where maybe you're looking at right now, I remember thinking like the big stumbling block is like, how do you get the first person to like pay you or the second, yeah. you know, person, yeah, second yeah. person. And you know, the answer is just like a lot of like upfront hustle and you have to just like go above and beyond. And so, um, you know, so with my very first customer, I literally just made a landlord website without asking my previous landlord because I went to their website and it sucked. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I spent three days building this landlord website from scratch with like photographs and search and sort and availability and all this good stuff. And their old site was awful. And then I just emailed it to him and said, Hey, do you want to buy this essentially? And, you know, I was short and tried to be really polite and all that. And then he ended up <laughs> not responding. Ooh. And so like, I was like, ah, oh, it's kind of a bummer. Like, you know, no one's paying me anyway, so it's not that big of a deal, but you know, I'm like hungry, like not metaphorically, like literally I, yeah. I need food and people need to give me money for that. Um, and so <laughs> I like, I'm very shy and especially on the phone, but I worked up the courage to like call him on the phone just so I could at least get a no to my face essentially, or to my ear, I guess. Yeah. And um, I called him and he picked up the phone. I said, Hey, my name is Jeremy. I'm a former tenant. Uh, I made you a website and I sent it to you over email. Did you get it? And he said, no. And I was like, oh, can I send it to you again? And would you mind taking a look? And he said, yeah, okay, sure. And so I sent it to him. Nice. And then, what a cold call. Uh, yeah, I know. It was just a straight up. I mean, was, you know, I guess it was a warm call because I could yeah. at least say I'm a, I'm a former tenant as opposed to just like, I work for a website selling company. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, I could actually see 
whether he was accessing the site because it was hosted on a computer like in my living room at the time. And <laughs> nice. so like, sure enough, like the little like performance monitor went from zero to one for like 30 seconds and back to zero. And then like, it was just silence again. So I was like, well, you know, I this tried. Is. And then, uh, then the phone rang. I was like, oh my God, he's calling back. And then he's like, <laughs> he's like, yeah, I'll take it. How much does it cost? I was like, what? I was like, I did not think the sales <laughs> cycle was that fast. I didn't even like, I didn't even have pricing yet, you know. So enough I, for I, groceries, like, right? Exactly. I just literally like made up a number. Uh, I think it was like three thousand dollars plus three hundred dollars a month, nice. uh, which I'm kind of give myself credit for, like such a high. That's number. solid. That's a very solid. Yeah, that's <laughs> pretty good. And like, because because after being in business a few years, I was like, whoa, that was way too high. Um, uh, but he's like, oh, three hundred a month is fine. But can you do two thousand up front? And I said, no problem. And I was like, let me, let me absolutely check with my boss real quick. Um, and, uh, and that was approved. That that discount was approved. Um, so yeah. So I mean, so you say how do you get? And so obviously, that was just that was the story of the success. Like there was failures too that I probably have forgotten more. But where you like email you. You know, I, I probably sent I probably sent that same email on that same cold call to five other landlords who who all like were like no or whatever. Yeah. But then maybe you'd send it to fifty and you get three yeses or something. Um, you know, so you basically just have to like figure out some creative way. You know, if I had a product and I was trying to go, I'd like go find potential clients and say, hey, can I can I buy you a cup of coffee for uh, you know ten minutes of your time? I just want to ask you about your business. Um, and if you do that, like you get an insanely high success rate. You know, just like you asked me to be on this podcast because I love talking about myself. It's like one of my most favorite topics. Um, if you go, if you go ask a potential client to like talk about their business and you offer to pay for their coffee or you know send them a gift card or something, like they almost always say yes. And then you know you you do you do like legitimately ask them and you learn as much as you can about what they go through, their struggles to try to like learn that market and figure out what their pain points are. Yeah. And then at the end, you could say, hey, do you mind if I like, tell you about this idea we're working on, you know, I'm, you know, I'm starting this company, we're not selling you anything, but we just want to collect feedback. And they'll, they're like, Oh, sure. And, and then you could say, Hey, do you just mind if I put you on a list for future updates? Like, you know, again, no pressure. And they're like, sure. And you do that 10 times. Then you've got like 10 champions in your corner who are like, Ooh, this is like a young scrappy kid who's trying to solve my pain point yeah, for me. Yeah. And you basically have these like very early adopters who are champions of your cause and are probably going to turn into customers. And so, I think that's a good way to like go about getting over that very first from zero to one mile per hour type problem. Wow, that is wonderful advice. I guaranteed I'm going to be asking everyone to coffee after this. Like I'm, I'm being dead serious. That is, that is really good advice. So then, like your company grows a little bit, and you, you take on a lower salary in order to continue growth within the company, or was it morale? Was it part morale? as well the answer is to the question you didn't ask before which is did i ever take venture capital and the answer is no so um, from beginning to end there was no influx of cash into this business and so every penny of of uh the growth or that we spent to grow the business was like coming out of you know the pocket of the business or my pocket there was no like exterior um funding and so uh, so the reason I paid myself so little is because I was basically trying to ambitiously grow the company mm-hmm. and, um, I, you know, programmers are very expensive. And so I yeah. had a skill that I could like basically donate to the company for free. I took $36,000 a year, which was like the, my maximum salary. Was that until net I the or gross? That was after, that was my after tax amount. So the okay. company, the company basically had it, it was an LLC and so it was passed through taxes. So the company basically paid 
all of my personal taxes because my only tax bill was the company's tax bill. So sometimes the company was paying like $100,000 in taxes, even though I only made 36000 Yeah. So the company would some, the company would pay the $100,000 in taxes, and then I would just take 3000 a month as my straight up draw. So I was like my after tax a month. You know, so it was definitely more than someone who's making 36000 and then pays tax on top of it or whatever. Um, but you know, but thirty six thousand is not yeah, that no, that is yeah, that is not yeah. not much at all, and especially in San Diego is even more impressive, honestly. Yeah, but I like had only known living very frugally, so like I went from like broke in college to like real broke starting a company <laughs> where I was like living on credit cards for a couple of years, to like suddenly you know I was living on like fifteen thousand dollars a year for a couple of years, and so then when I got wow. to thirty six thousand, oh, wow. you were I, living. <laughs> I mean, I was in I was in Michigan. My rent was like four hundred a month, and just basically spent another, you know, six hundred a month on food and whatever. And that was like, you know, that was basically it. Um, and then yeah, so then thirty six thousand. Yeah, in San Diego, I had a roommate. Rent was seven hundred bucks a month. Drove a ninety nine Ford Explorer that I paid three thousand cash for. Um, you know, if you just don't buy a lot of stuff, you don't spend a lot. I guess. That's true. I'm pretty sure this is correct. I'm taking a little bit of a stab in the dark here. Pretty sure this is correct. As your company began to grow, your mom came to work for the company as well. Is that correct? That's true. Was it difficult having running a business with family? Like, did it get dicey at all? Because one of I'll just say one of my rules is I don't ever want to work with my family, and that's no like I think all of my family members are very smart and capable. I just, yeah. I just think at some point it does get dicey or it could get dicey. Yeah. Well, I think your mileage may vary. You know, it depends heavily on your relationship family members. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I think that like, for example, I wouldn't have gone to business with like all of my parents. I don't want to name any other names, <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, and so there was, you know, there was like a moment very, or very early where, um, I, there's like a day where I was kind of pissed at her and I was like, oh, she kind of screwed something up or like she's not pulling her weight. And like, I like went for a run or something. And like, I remember having this like moment of clarity, which was like, if she never provides any positive value, period, like zero positive value ever for the remainder of this company, I am perfectly happy to like part with 30% of the company, which is what she owned. She owned 30, I owned 70. Um, 30% of the company because she is my mom and I love her and she raised me and I think like I owe her everything. Yeah. And so like if, if she provides zero, like as a baseline, I am at peace with that being her share. And then everything she provides above that is like all bonus. And so like, honestly, from that day forward, like once I like had that peace and that moment of clarity, um, there was no, there was no issues. Like I really, and it was really nice in fact, to like have someone who, you know, kind of, you know, is not bullshitting you or, you know, is not kissing yeah. your ass yeah. really, or, or at least like has like unquestionable loyalty. loyalty. Um, and she, to her credit, she also, she was the second employee in a company um, that grew to 70 employees and sold for like $4 million in the nineties. Oh, wow. um, and so she had acquisition experience, she had startup experience and she just had like business experience. And so like, while I was like a 22 to 34 year old kid for the duration of this company, she could give like little nuggets of wisdom, which is like, Jeremy, you got to fill up the sales funnel or you yeah, know, whatever, yeah. whatever. I'm like, what's a sales funnel? <laughs> um, which at the time I was like, mom, I know how to do this. But like looking back, like there's all probably really valuable. Yeah. 
man, thank goodness you went on that run then. That I feel like that changes everything. <laughs> That's true. Actually, like I don't run much anymore because like my knees are kind of beat up. So I like I wonder what other kind of uh, epiphanies. epiphanies I'm missing on. <laughs> How'd you know when it was time to sell? Because um, I feel like I wonder if you had like this experience, like your business is growing, things are going really well. And like, there's almost like a sense of like, like there's some sort of high to the success that's coming to your business and maybe you would want to hold on to it or was your plan to sell the whole time? How'd you know? Um, I was a poor person when I was running the company. Like I had no money. Yeah. Like when I, when I say I was taking 36,000 a year home, like there wasn't some like massive, you know, cash sitting elsewhere that I, that was it. I really had access to. You know, the company had a fair bit of money. The company might have had 50 or 100 grand in the bank account at any given moment, um, which sounds like a lot of money for sure. But we had seven employees, like many of who were making six figures. So, you know, our like our monthly, our burn rate was like 20 or 30,000. No, it's more like, it's probably like, you know, it's probably like, yeah, it's probably like 60 or 70,000 a month we were spending just to, um, just to pay everyone every month and all of other stuff. And so, um, you know, so if you have a hundred grand in the bank and you owe 60,000 every month, it's not like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not like you don't feel like you're very flush. Like they're, they're kind of big numbers to someone who's not familiar with like big numbers in business, but like, you know, you have two bad months. Um, and, and I, I was pretty conservative. Like, I think we probably had three months of, so maybe we had 200 grand in the bank or something. So we, we've had three months of like cash flow at any given moment. So it's not like I wasn't losing sleep ever about making payroll the next month. But for sure, like I'd not feel rich. Um, oh yeah. And then you know, basically, someone offered me five million dollars cash for the company. Oh wow. Um, oh man, cash. I was like, yeah. in a suitcase, uh, <laughs> a duffel bag. Well, I mean, when you say cash, is basically there's only like a few ways you can you can pay for a company. One is cash, which means like they wire money to your checking account. Two is like stock, where they send stock to your brokerage account and three is some sort of other contract where you have like an earn out or something which means you give you give them the company and then they agree to pay you some stock or some cash in the future based on these things that are hit and according to everyone who i've talked to who knows about this the best way to sell a company is just for cash, cash. because everything else is like you know you could take the cash and buy stock the earnouts aren't guaranteed and are could they could renege on their deal or you could end up in a lawsuit or who knows what. Yeah. And so, um, you know, so when I'm, you know, basically living on 3000 bucks a month and, uh, driving a 99 Ford and then a company says $5 million, uh, yes. they, did, they, didn't, they didn't like send them an email, be like, Hey, you want to, you want to, do you want to, do you want to sell for $5 million? They, they just start started the, uh, the dance. And, um, and also like, and you said, how did I know? I guess like, just like there was the dot-com boom of the 90s, there was kind of like another boom where um, typically companies are valued on a multiple of profits. Mm -hmm. So if you make like $100,000 a year, your company might be worth like $500,000 a year. Like, like uh, an acquiring company would have to pay you five years of your profits up front in order to convince you to like hand it over. Right. Like any less than that, you wouldn't want to hand it over. And any more than that, they would want to take that money and invest it elsewhere. Um, but our industry at the time, the real estate technology space, was, companies were being valued on a multiple of revenue, not profit. And so the year we sold, we were doing about a million dollars a year in revenue. 
but our profit in our final year before we acquired was about $25,000. Wow. So, oh, man, that right. works in your favor for sure. Right, exactly. So as a, as a multiple of rev, as, as a multiple of profit, we were only worth like, you know, 150,000 bucks or something. And, you know, and I would have to split that with my mom and the employees got a share too and pay taxes. And so if I sold it for 150,000, I might end up with like 50,000 or something, right. um, which isn't life-changing kind of money. But I sold it for um, 5 million and ended up with about 2 million. You know, three million came to me, and a million went to the government, and I ended up with two million. So, two million is enough to to change things for a while, at least. Yeah. Did you tell anyone you you sold it, or did you like? Did you have any concerns of relationships changing because of it? Did any relationships change because of it? Because I, because I am, I think I've been like kind of looking into how lottery winners just repeatedly blow their cash or like ruin relationships and i wonder yeah. if what amount like if that amount would be something that would change relationships yeah i think my experience is that basically nothing changed um that's wonderful you know so like for a point of context i guess like to be in the one percent right now i guess we're not hearing as much about lately but when there was like the the Wall Street Occupy Wall Street thing and anti one percent thing. Like to be a member of the one percent, you need a net worth of about ten million dollars. And so when I suddenly had a net worth of two million dollars, I wasn't even in the one percent. Yeah, I, I like <laughs> I, I sold a text up for five million dollars. Like it sounds like this fabulous. Thing, but like in terms of like in terms of real wealth that's out there in the world, like I, I wasn't like fabulously wealthy. Also in terms of context, like when when lottery winners win the lottery. I think overwhelmingly lottery winners, like, unfortunately, like this is a terrible thing, by the way, but they're like of a very rough socioeconomic status. They're basically poor people who aren't good at math and do things like play the lottery. And, yeah. um, and so when you are like, you know, living in poverty or around the poverty line, and then you suddenly come into a few million bucks and you don't know anything about money, you don't probably have higher education, you haven't spent a lot of time um, dealing with that. Um, suddenly you have this very difficult, weird new situation and the people around you aren't also dealing with a very different, like comparative situation. Whereas like my situation, while I personally felt poor, I still ran a tech startup and was like, you know, driving to conferences and rubbing elbows with people who were fabulously wealthy already. And, and people didn't know that I was, you know, at the time, I don't think anyone I never talked about my personal finances at the time. So I don't think anyone knew I drove a 99 Ford or yeah. was a broke person. So the, they, they might have assumed that I was wealthy man, right? Because I owned a company a lot of them had heard of or whatever. Um, and so when I suddenly like realized that wealth, I don't think really anyone gave a shit. Yeah. You know? Like that was just, it wasn't that big of a deal. Well, that's, that's good to hear. That's very refreshing. Because... <laughs> It also makes me think that you have good friends in your life as well that were rooting for you and yeah, wanted that's the best true, for right? you. Yeah. yeah, I don't think any of my friendships changed either. I think it's like even even now when I tell people I sold a company, um, you know, if no one knows, no one knows the, the scale of these things. When I said that I ran a company versus selling a company, like no one knows the scale of things. Maybe you can you can run a company and be a billionaire. You can sell a company for a hundred bucks, and so I guess yeah, just didn't really make that much of a difference in my life. Yes, relationship-wise. But now you got financial freedom for for here on out. <laughs> Did you have a number in mind that you wanted to hit where you knew you could retire early? I should. I don't think I've even mentioned it. You retired early. 
<laughs> yeah, that's kind of like my shtick now, which is I, I teach people about personal finance and investing primarily on Instagram. And in my little bio there, I, I say I retired at 36, which is, I guess that's true. I don't have a job. I still kind of work every day, but no one's paying me to do it anymore. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't need an income anymore. And yeah, as of today, my net worth is about $3.5 million. You know, the, the difference between now and when I sold the company was the income I earned during two years of working for that company and the the growth of my investments in the subsequent five years or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I I guess, I I guess it kind of dawned on me slowly. There's this thing called the fire movement now, which is financial independence, retire early. Like I had never heard of that. Um, I just suddenly had 2 million bucks overnight and I still had a job. I was working for the company that bought my company. And so for two years I was just working my job and then, you know, I slowly started to realize like, oh, I make, I was thinking I was making like 150000 a year. Like that's the salary they paid me, which is great. Mm-hmm. But then my, you know, if the market goes up by 10% and you have 2 million bucks in the market, that's $200,000. And then if it goes up by 10% again, that's $220,000, yeah. which is like kind of what happened. The I think it was even more than 10% because the market was doing great. Um, so I was making like $300,000 a year from the market increasing and making one fifty a year from my job. And I'm like, huh, I could just <laughs> I can make a change work. here. <laughs> I could just not work the job and still scrape by, you know. Um, and along the way, I basically didn't want to become the lotto winner story that you, you know, the that you hear so much about. And so I basically started reading every book I could on investing in personal finance. And it like, you know, the I guess this was another like moment of clarity for me, which is like the 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 clouds parted and the cl- the the sky cleared and I was like, oh, like investing is super easy. All these books say the exact same thing. It's really simple, but that like no one's selling that message because there's no, no money to be made from the simple message of how to invest wisely. And the messages that get sold are day trading and drop shipping and Forex and MLMs and Bitcoin and blah. Yeah. And you like, yeah. and, and everyone's like, investing's hard and expensive and crazy. Yeah. Um, but once I read all the books, it's like, oh, this shit's super easy. That's all <laughs> nonsense. That's all nonsense. And so I invested the simple, easy way and has done well for me, of course. Um, and now I teach that simple, easy way on Instagram because I don't need money and I can give it away for free, which is nice. Yeah, that's super awesome. And you... Doing research on you, I one, I learned a ton just through going through your stuff, but two, the two rules are pounded into my head. I actually, last the past two nights from doing research on you, I've had dreams of investing in index funds. Really? Back, oh my back to back nights, I visualized logging into Vanguard <laughs> and oh my doing God. it. Um, it's like, that's like peak compliment. I don't think I, I've like, I've, I've entered someone's dream. That's amazing. <laughs> there you go. I'm happy I could be the first. Do you want to, do you want to touch on the two rules? And I think the biggest question that I have to ask is how does the common man become a millionaire? Because it, it's simple, you know, <laughs> it is simple. I can tell you exactly how I can tell you exactly how. So first of all, all that crazy stuff I mentioned, all the confusing stuff, four, expect just forget all of it. This is how you become wealthy. Rule number one is live below your means. That means spend less money than you make. If you don't do that, you'll be broke no matter how much money you make. If you make $150,000 a year like I did and you spend one fifty a year, which is totally possible. I know people that do it all the time. You'll be broke and you'll be stressed about money and you will not be building wealth and you will not become a millionaire. So rule number one is live below your means. 
Rule number two is invest early and often. So you spend less than you make, rule number one, mm-hmm. and you take the difference, that delta before, between what you spend and what you earn, and you invest it constantly. If you do that, you will build wealth, even if you're not investing perfectly, even though it's very easy to invest perfectly, as I can explain. Um, and that's how people build wealth. And so to, to demonstrate that into, as to how to become a millionaire, I went back and I downloaded the stock market data going back uh, like 120 years to the beginning of like the dawn of the modern stock market era. And I wrote a little program, you're a programmer, you'd appreciate this, which modeled what would happen if you invested $250 per month starting every single year and ending every single year. And it turns out there's no 40-year period, no matter when you start, when you end, there's no 40-year period where investing $250 per month would not make you a millionaire. So basically, to become a millionaire, you invest 250 bucks a month in the S&P 500 index fund, wait 40 years, you'll be a millionaire. That's that's like the slightly oversimplistic version. I wouldn't do exactly that. There's a few caveats why I wouldn't do exactly that. But if you did do that, it would work. Um, and the average final value, by the way, isn't a million. It's actually like 1.9 something million. So it's about oh. 2 million. Yeah. The lowest, the worst that's ever performed, it was like 1.2 million. That's if your 40th year was in 2008, right after the financial crisis. But if you had held for another 10 years, you would be up to like 5 million or something. And the best it's ever performed was like um, 3 or 4 million, uh, right, right at the peak of the dot com boom in 99. So that's it. That's it. That's how you become a millionaire. You just invest every single month over a long period of time. The massive power of compound growth builds and builds and builds and snowballs and snowballs and snowballs. Yeah, that 250 a month times uh, 40 years is only $120,000. So at worst, you're going to 10x your money. Right. And on average, you're going to about 20x your money. And that that is the compound growth at work of those companies. Like when you invest in the S&P 500, it's the basically the U.S. economy, all those companies are growing and profiting and building and innovating, and they're all funneling the profits back to their stock, back into the S&P 500 index fund, back into your account. And the longer you hold that and the more money you put in to increase your share of that piece of the pie, the more wealthy you get. That's it. That's it. It's that simple. That's it. It's that simple. Can you explain compound growth for me by chance? Because I think sometimes... If I heard a number, I can. I only got to do two fifty a month. How do I even? Why does that even add up to that? I would love to explain compound growth to you. So we can. It's gonna be a little tiny bit of math, but I think if I try to hang, you'll, you'll 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 realize where the magic happens. So let's say you have uh, you invest five hundred a month. I'm gonna use five hundred because I did this math recently, so I'll be able to quote the numbers. I hope. Nice. So you do five hundred a month, which is six thousand per year. So five hundred times twelve is six thousand. So 6000 per year, and, and over the history of the U.S. stock market, the stock market has returned about 10% per year on average. So that means if you get a 10% return on your $6,000, 10% of 6000 is 600 So after year one, if you put $6,000 in the market, at the end of the year, on average, this isn't every year, of course, but if you get a 10% return that year, you'll have $6,600. Your $6,000 of your principal that you put in plus the $600 of interest or growth that you get. Okay, that's just called interest. Mm -hmm. Now let's go to year number two. Year number two, you put in another $6,000. So now let's look at the interest you get in year number two. You get $600 from the money you just put in, 
but you also get $600 from the money you put in last year. So the money you put in last year pays you again. So now it's $1,200 of interest that you get. But wait, oh, no. there's more. Oh, I no. feel like it's an infomercial. But wait, there's more. <laughs> Sham wow. That, yeah, exactly. That that growth that you had last year, that 600 bucks, remember the 6600 that 600 bucks extra, that provides you growth too. So 10% of that is 60 bucks. So you get the 600 from last year, you know, the 600 from your contribution last year, the 600 from your contribution this year, plus another 60 from your growth from last year for a total of 1260 plus your 12,600 is equal to 13,000 whatever. And so that that right there is compound growth where the growth is creating growth. And it turns out if you extend that over 40 years, your contributions are only 120,000 or, or, or only $240,000 in this case, but the growth of the growth, that like $60, that little piece of the snowball that gets bigger and bigger ends up being the vast majority of the value of your portfolio and it, at like $3 million or whatever, three of the $4 million is just the growth of the growth. So that's like, and, and you, you see it starts very small. That's why the long period of time is what matters because your money that you put in each year keeps paying you more and more and more and more. And then the growth keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's a snowball effect. That's just this exponential curve. That's where you, that's where people, you know, so most millionaires aren't rappers, aren't football players, aren't selling internet companies. They're people that just put money into their 401k every year and let it grow for 40 years. And they wake up at retirement and they're like, Oh, look, I got 5 million bucks in there. That's why it takes 10 million bucks to be the 1% because people have just been putting a thousand bucks a month into their account instead of 250 and now they got 10 million or whatever and that's why it is also so important to start young but also i mean financial education isn't readily available for young people which seems so ironic to me if there's so much money to be made if we just started earlier plus we have student debt as well and i'd love if you could touch on the like um how to handle debt before beginning to invest and why that's important. Yeah, well, you say there's so much money to be made, but unfortunately, there's so much money to be made for the individual investor, for the normal person right. like you or me. Right, right, right. But that doesn't really benefit like the system. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I tend to be like a pretty skeptical guy, but like I get a little bit conspiracy theory level on this stuff, which is gigantic corporations don't really have a big incentive for people to like live below their means and get out of debt. Oh, and yeah, no, like, like if I'm Ford or Amazon or any credit card uh, company, credit card company or Sony or whatever, they love if you take out as much debt as possible, go pro like plow that money into their this year's profits. And then you work the rest of your life to like make up for it. Like that works great for them. Oh yeah. They love that's, it. That's a, that's a great deal. And so, so they're not, they're not like sending a lobbyist to Washington to get personal finance and inject it into the core <laughs> curriculum of schools. Like, like I really feel like I'm on the, like I'm a conspiracy theorist here on the edges, but like, I mean, I think most people's experience is like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Like we fucking learned science and social studies. And I'm a big fan of education, so I'm not knocking that stuff. But like the whole point of education is to like build a career so that you can make money. But then they never talk to you about what to do with the money and like how to manage it. It's crazy. Um, so yeah, to to your question, debt is another big part of this piece, which is just it's this anchor that's weighing you down that creates an indentured servitude situation where you have to work at your job forever to keep paying the banks to pay for the stuff that you bought years ago. 
and you need to like break that cycle. And so I always recommend before investing, you got to go ham on your debt. You go absolutely ham on it. And with the amount of my posts you've read, you've probably seen me mention go ham. And it always confuses people. You got to go ham. <laughs> I got to go ham. And all I mean by that is you, it's a very intense focus. You go very hard. That's all I mean. There's, it's not an acronym. It doesn't stand for anything. Some people say it's hard as a mother. Um, but like, I don't, I don't, I think it's funnier just to picture an actual like ham. Christmas ham or a, a canned ham or something. I don't know, but you go ham on it. And so like, you know, and, and, and the faster and harder you go with this debt, the more like magnificent your, your long-term potential is. So like, let's say you have $20,000 worth of debt. If you pay, I've got, I've got some more better numbers. This, but I'm just going to approximate. If you, you pay the minimum like 200 bucks a month or something, mm-hmm. it might take you 10 years to get out of debt. And then once you're debt-free, you start investing 200 bucks a month. Now, let's say you have a 30-year career instead of a 40-year career to invest. Instead of that, instead of that million, you might only have like 300,000 or something. Right. Like that, right? It's a big difference. Or, big difference. But if you instead of paying two, 200 a month towards your debt, you pay 500 a month. Instead of getting out of debt in 10 years, you might get out of debt in four years, like faster than double because you're paying way less interest. Then you have a 36-year career and you're putting twice as much in. So instead of having like 300,000, you're probably going to have like two or three million. It's like this massive difference. And, and young people who are at the very beginning of this exponential growth, if they're like not paying that debt and they're wasting their money, it's like it, it hurts my soul. And this is what I love. And so this is why I'm always on Instagram. Maybe I should be on TikTok. I don't know if TikTok's just <laughs> I was like, going to ask you, when are you going to make that move? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, the videos are kind of annoying. I, I probably will one day. But <laughs> I'm still, I'm just, I'm just like shaking, I'm like running up to 24-year-olds on the street and grabbing them by their collar and shaking them and saying, you know, get out of debt, invest your money. And they say, COVID, get away from me. I was like, okay. <laughs> hands off. Enough. Squirting like, you with hand sanitizer. Right. Get this guy out of here. Well, Follow me on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So let's say, let's say, hypothetical here. Let's say all debt is gone. And I'm like, I want to invest in some index funds. I want to invest in some. You also introduced this to me too. I had no idea what a target retirement date index fund was prior to following your content. How would you go about choosing the right index funds? And how do you diversify your portfolio? That's a great question. So when I said you put 250 a month in the S&P 500 index fund and hold it for 40 years, you could totally do that and that'd be fine. And if someone wants to do that, I don't tell them it's a bad idea because I don't know. I, I know it's like one of the very good options. But in my opinion, I prefer to be slightly more diversified. Mm-hmm. So the S&P 500 is just the 500 biggest U.S. companies but there are actually you know, about 4,000 publicly traded U.S. companies. So you could buy all, all 4,000 to diversify away from just the biggest companies. And there are also about four or 5,000 non-U.S. companies that are publicly traded, like companies like Samsung and Alibaba and Nintendo or whatever. Um, and you can invest in those. And there's this whole thing called bonds, which we haven't really talked about. But bonds are just basically a way to like loan money to a company or a government, and then they pay you back with interest over time. And that has less growth, but it provides you income. Mm-hmm. So basically, you can you can buy these U.S. stocks, which is one asset class, the international stocks, which is another asset class, and the bonds, which is a third asset class. And those three things make up what is called a three-fund portfolio. And so if you buy those three things, a U.S. stock market index fund, an international stock market index fund, and a bond index fund, and that's all you buy for the rest of your life, 
then you'll be in absolute great shape. I hope you don't mind me giving a plug. But if you go to personalfinanceclub.com and search three fund portfolio, it lists the actual ticker symbols. Or you can just Google it. There's other sites that like Bogleheads is one of my Go to Jeremy's. Don't don't go yeah. anywhere else. Go, go straight to Jeremy's. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have ads. It doesn't pay me any money. It costs me money, but whatever. Um, but yeah, it lists the ticker symbols right there. And so you know, you can just like go to vanguard.com. You click open an account. You type in your information. You guys know how to open accounts. And then you click buy. You know, you put your you put some money in by linking your bank account, just like you do with Venmo or something. I always try to like make yeah. a little uh, analogy yeah, for keep it relatable for, for sure. <laughs> I think I'm I think I'm barely a millennial. I think like I'm, I was born in the '80s, so I'm counting it. I'm just barely. I'm counting it um, for sure. I'll give it to you. All right. All right. <laughs> thank you. I think I think depending on like which uh, BuzzFeed article you look up, I'm like I count or don't count. I don't know. Oh gosh, um, I try to stay away from those. <laughs> All right, exactly. <laughs> anyway, so you go to Vanguard.com, click open an account, you link your bank account, you put your money in, you can set up an auto contribution, and then you can buy those three things, and only those three things. But wait, there's an even easier way. And you said, what about targeted index funds? And so with this three fund portfolio, you have a few decisions to make, which is how much of each, for example. And also you have another decision to make, which is... Um, when do I rebalance? Which means, like, let's say you ha- you own U.S. and international, and next year U.S. does really bad and international does really good. Best investing practice is to do what's called rebalancing, which is to like sell a little international, buy a little U.S., so you stay on your target asset allocation. Right. Um, and as you age, it's nice to reallocate more towards bonds, so that when you're 60, like, so when my mom asks me for financial advice, she says. Jeremy, I'm not trying to become super wealthy anymore. I just want my nest egg to stay there and provide me a little bit of income along the way. Yeah. And so she basically wants bonds. And I think many or most old people share that. Uh, don't Sentiment. Seem to call my mom old. Sorry, mom, <laughs> if you're listening to this. Uh, but young at uh, heart. Share that, yeah, share that sentiment because they, you know. Um, they've spent their life, they've made a couple million bucks or whatever, and they don't want to see it go from 2 million to 500,000 and just trust that this isn't the crash. It's never going to rebound or whatever. Um, so a target date index fund does all those things. It buys the three index funds for you. It rebalances them for you as they change in value and it reallocates them more towards bonds as you age. And these things are named after a year. So for example, you could take your birth year for me, it's 1980. I add 65, I get 2045, and then I go to Vanguard, and I buy the Vanguard 2045 Target Date Index Fund. That's the only thing I ever need to buy ever to optimally invest. And all I need to do is put more money into that single Target Date Index Fund or set up auto contributions, and you become a millionaire. That's it. We did it. How, long, how far are we into this call? An hour or something? We, we became a millionaire in an hour. That's it. Yeah, that's all it takes. I think I saw... Um... You probably said this, a quote that's saying, like, the two people that invest the best are a dead person and someone that forgot they had an account. Honestly, if you got that type of fund and you set up the automatic contributions and never even looked at it again, oh, my gosh. Get rid of the the headache and you'd be a millionaire, if not multimillionaire. Totally. And every time you log in and decide to monkey with it, you're, like, so much more likely to hurt yourself than help yourself. And so... Yeah, that study that you mentioned. I don't know if it's true or not. I think it's like kind of urban legend. And because like Fidelity supposedly did that study when they found that. And I think that they have an interest in like 
not having people believe that because they want people logging in and buying more and of their play products with all and stuff. stuff. Yeah, right. But for sure, any sort of monkeying around, day trading, timing the market, jumping in and out, switching strategies, all that stuff is just opening you up to losing to the market because the market is like this very optimal, efficient thing. And when you throw a wrench in it, you're just going to hurt yourself. And so, um, you know, and it's very counterintuitive. A lot of people, like, you know, the, the most common questions I get are, shouldn't I get out before the crash or should I be picking this stock and not this stock? Or, and, it, you know, it's human intuition to want to believe that we can beat the market because it seems like, oh, you just buy the good ones, not the bad ones. But the problem is everybody is doing that. And so every single stock and the, and the price of the entire market is priced based on the sum total of human knowledge constantly being baked into every single price in the market and so if you from your limited worldview whether it's you or me we all yeah. don't have some we're not omniscient but the market essentially is because the market has everybody doing this at the same time you can't consistently predict do you that can't predict the market and every once in a while you can and get lucky sometimes people say hey what about apple five years ago and it went up four times i was like great like awesome i'm happy <laughs> do it again <laughs> but also people People don't usually say, hey, I bought Sears Canada four years ago and it went out of business a year later. Uh, but I did. I bought Sears Canada. <laughs> did I lost all my money. It's, you know, like, so I've had some winners too, but like, but those are like those are lessons I've learned. And like now I just I just buy index funds and I just wait and I let let them provide money to me. Let them do their thing. Yeah. I want to talk about taxes because that's a realm that I am completely baffled by. So you do something called tax delay. And that is so you can amplify your money by waiting to give taxes, tax money. Is that correct? Am I saying any of that right? Yeah. So uh, before we get into this, I want to go back to the two rules. Oh, yes, please. Which are live below your means and invest early and often. And even if you don't invest in a tax optimal way, you'll still be fine by doing those two rules. And the reason I mention that is because I don't want perfect to be the enemy of good because if you're listening to this for the first time and you're learning about investing for the first time at some point maybe i've already lost you or maybe i'm going to lose you i don't know but at some point you're going to be like okay that went over my head or whatever it's really not that hard we've only we're, we're only an hour you took stupid science class for 14 years you can you can take investing <laughs> class for three yeah, hours that's it's right. gonna make you a millionaire uh, but my point is like don't don't let any of these terms scare you from doing a good thing, which is investing early and often, even if it's not optimal yet as you're learning more. So for sure. So taxes are a big thing. So like, let's say you go to a Vanguard and you open up a Vanguard account, what's called a regular taxable Vanguard brokerage account. And you, you know, you put in your 250 year and you get your 10% per year and you end up with, you know, 1.5 million bucks or whatever. The government is going to say, Hey, you turned 120,000 into 1.5 million and you sell your 1.5 million to go buy a million dollar house or right. something the government's going to say hey you just made uh, like 1.4 million you know cuz 1.4 of that 1.5 we haven't taxed you on yet and so then you get hit with what with what's called capital gains tax capital means money mm -hmm. and gain because it went up in value or capital stuff you know stuff that went up in value and so the government says hey give us give us all this money and so you do it. So it's not, it's not good, but it's not terrible. So of, of your 1.4, they take 20% of that, which is $700,000. And then you have, oh, is that right? No, 1.4. No, it's 280,000. Sorry. So 280,000, a quarter million goes away. And so you have 1.25 million left, more or less. 
and you can still go buy your house and have a quarter million left to throw a big party or whatever. So it's not the worst thing. You know, I'd much rather have one and a quarter million dollars after taxes than still my original right, 120,000. Yeah. Than not have grow, it. <laughs> right? right. So it's not that bad, which is why I said, hey, like, don't let perfect be the enemy of good because good's still pretty darn good. But there's ways to basically limit how much tax you pay. And one of them is called the Roth IRA. And so the government, in all of their wisdom, back in the, uh, I think it was like the 70s or 80s, they basically said, hey, Social Security is pretty sketch. Like, we don't know <laughs> if we're going to be able to support the forever. Um, we don't want to be in the business of just paying for every old person to live. Let's figure out a way for workers, for citizens, to make their own retirement like plans. Right, yeah. right? And so they knew that you could invest in a brokerage account with Vanguard, but they also knew that most people didn't do that. So the government can't really force people to do things except for like wear masks and stay home That's or whatever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but they can force you or they can incentivize you based on giving you tax breaks or setting laws or whatever. And so they said, hey, we'll make this type of account called an IRA, which is an individual retirement account. Let's just call it a Roth IRA. Yeah. Um, and any money you put in there is never taxed ever, ever again. Wow. So if I put my 250 a month into a Roth IRA and I buy my target date index fund, Vanguard 2050, and it grows by 10% a year over the course of 40 years, I end up with 1.5 million, I can take all 1.5 million out the day I turn 59.5, which is the day that these rules go into place. And I can spend all 1.5 million on hookers and blow, <laughs> zero tax, Your dream. zero tax. <laughs> I know it's my, it's my dream. Well, no, I'll, I'll spend I'll spend half on hookers and blow, and the other half I'll, I'm just going to waste. And then <laughs> I feel like that's like I think George Carlin told that joke. So I can say as applying the hookers and blow is in the waste. But but the government comes after you for zero of that because it's all inside of a special type of a brokerage account called a Roth IRA. And so basically, by putting the money into a Roth IRA instead of a regular taxable brokerage account, you save yourself a quarter of a million bucks. 40 years from now, which is, it's, it's like the best deal in taxes, or it's maybe the second best deal in taxes. But that's like a really good one, right? So when you go to Vanguard.com and you click open an account, the next thing it's going to ask you is what type of account. Yeah. And so you can click regular taxable brokerage account. I think they just call it Vanguard account. Or you can click Roth IRA. And if you're a young person who doesn't have one and you have any earned income, you can't open one if you're like below 18 you can't open one if you don't have a job or whatever but if you have earned income you're making money you're paying taxes then you can put up to six thousand dollars per year into a roth ira and yeah so the the no the tax-free thing comes with a caveat which is the government the government didn't make this for billionaires to never pay taxes again they made it for like middle income people to protect a little bit of their nest egg from tax so they could retire more uh comfortably more securely comfortably exactly you always are helping me find the words that I don't find because I don't get enough sleep or something. Um, but yeah, so the Roth IRA has that string attached, which is you can only put in 6,000 bucks a year. And that limit is use it or lose it. If you don't contribute your $6,000 by tax day, Oof. then so like I can't go back now and contribute to my 2019 Roth IRA um, because tax day for 2019 has passed. And so, yeah, so if you have money and you invest it, you should for sure fill up that Roth IRA if you can. Yeah, absolutely. So the money that you have, are you keeping that in a brokerage account because you need to do the safe withdrawal amount? Or do you have most of it in a Roth that 
you cannot touch. So uh, I have, you know, two good and interesting problems. One of which is I have like a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> the, like, the best like and worst problem. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, and, and not only do I have a lot of money, but I got my money all at once, essentially. Um, and so the contribution limit is $6,000 per year. And I oh, had so $2 have million. To, yeah, yeah. And so I put my 6,000 in and then I had one million nine hundred and ninety four thousand one million ninety nine thousand whatever like yeah right up there right up there nine hundred thousand ninety whatever i can't even i don't it's such a six thousand such a small percent of two million i can't even do the math in my head um so basically about 95 percent of my money is in a regular taxable brokerage account and then I, I put everything I can into the limits of the law. Like when I had a 401k, I maxed it out every year, IRAs, whatever whatever I can do, I do. But the reality is if you, you have a super high income and a high net worth, there's not a lot of these like regular tax advantage accounts that you can use. Um, and you mentioned the safe withdrawal rate. If all of your money is in a retirement account and you retire before the age of 59.5, you basically have to figure out, okay, what do I do here? And um, I always recommend you always max out every every retirement account you can, even if you're trying to retire early, because there's like six ways to get at that money essentially, or or six ways to retire early if you have all your money in in um, retirement accounts. And one of them is just to have money in a regular brokerage account. So to this day, like I, there's no way. I mean, who knows what the market does, right. but it's very likely I'm never gonna have to even be close to touching my retirement accounts before I turn 59 and a half. So every year I'm just trying to funnel as much as I can into that tax advantaged state. Um, and then my living expenses, I take about 2% of my net worth every year and put it into my checking account. I take it out of index funds, sell those index funds. I've got cash. Now it's in my checking account. And then I just live on that for a year. And that's basically how I'm supporting myself. You now. do a lump sum once a year? No, I mean, you know, I think people kind of get caught up in the logistics and the logistics are just a little bit weird depending on like what else is going on in my life. And so I do a little bit of real estate investing. And so for example, I just sold a, you know, COVID hit, we had a vacation rental. And so, um, I sold this house in San Diego for $800,000 and I got $800,000 in cash. And so I have no reason, you know, and then I put some of that cash other places or whatever, but I have no reason to sell into my index funds because I had this influx of cash. Um, and you know, other, I have other income from real estate. So generally, um, yeah, it's, it's much more ad hoc, I guess. It's just depending on what's going, but if my, if my like cash account gets pretty low, I'll sell, sell like 20 or 30 grand of index funds and that'll cover me for the next six months or whatever, something like that. Nice. I mean, you threw me a bone here with saying you got into real estate investing. We have to, we have to touch on that before, before we do the big send off. This is the most... I don't know, straightforward statement I've ever heard from anybody in my entire life that your primary residence may be the, the one of the worst investments you could ever make. But real estate investing for like rental properties, that seems like an entirely different game if it has cash flow. You're playing the rental properties only outside of the one you just recently purchased, but you played that game for a long time, correct? Yeah. So thank you. So I, a lot of times on my Instagram, I'm like dispelling the myth that your primary residence is the best investment you'll ever make. It's a bad investment. You lose money on your primary residence almost exclusively once you count everything you put into it. You know, people like to ignore the mortgage, the 
the maintenance, the taxes, the property insurance, the realtor fees, like when you count all that stuff and then you count what you bought it for and what you sold it for, almost everybody loses money to the tune of about 3% per year. So it's like, it's kind of like putting money into your house is like a savings account that pays a neg pays negative interest, which isn't terrible because, you know, people, homeowners will point out that renters lose a hundred percent. That's kind of true, except, you know, a lot of times owning a home is much more expensive. So if you're putting, you know, two or $3,000 a month into your home and you're losing money on it, or you're renting for a thousand bucks a month and investing 2000 bucks a month, mm -hmm. the, you know, that 2000 bucks a month investing with a positive value is going to dramatically outperform the $3,000 a month losing money every year. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's my thing on primary homes, but Yes, thank you for like recognizing the very large nuance, which is that doesn't apply to rental properties. If you buy a rental property and you're not just living in it, spending money on it, but you have renters in there paying you rent, or there's vacation rentals or other you know commercial <laughs> renters or whatever, then it's actually this really amazing investment where you have like this like four tiered way to build money, which is like cash flow from the incoming rent, you pay down of your mortgage, so you're building equity. Um, uh, increase in the value from the um, growth of the, you know, just the property value. And there's also a tax benefit of depreciation that you can count on your taxes, which is a, a game real estate people play. So for sure, I like to invest in two things, index funds and real estate. And that's it. Everything else. And when I say real estate, I mean, investment, real estate, rental properties, stuff like that, not my primary home, even though I now do own a two bedroom condo, which I, I imagine you you purchased that home for other reasons outside of monetary benefits, which I think says a lot about this idea of budgeting and investing isn't a restrictive thing. Like you, we still have the ability to make conscious decisions based on quality of life as well. Absolutely, and so yeah, I bought I bought my home for every reason except. Uh, it being a good investment, right? I, you know, I, I could afford it. I, my brother comes to visit often and he, like, he's been sleeping on my couch for like the last two years. Um, you know, I wanted to move like to a nicer neighborhood, whatever. Um, and, and so for sure, like, I think the purpose of money, you know, we're getting a little bit cerebral here, but the purpose of money is to, is to be happy and to help people. And I think both of those things you know, there's no guarantee you can do any, either of those things, but you have a much better chance if you like take good financial care of yourself. And I think you're happy, you know, and that doesn't mean like you got to YOLO and burn, you know, burn all your money right now. Cause I think people are happier today if they have a financial plan and are building wealth. You know, I think that you're happier as a 25 year old, if you're putting 500 bucks a month into an, a Roth IRA and a target date index fund, and you're like, oh shit, I'm building wealth. I'm going to be okay later on. And so when I go to the bar, I'm not like cripplingly broke and depressed. I'm like, it's part of the plan yeah. to like maximize lifetime happiness. And the other piece of that is like the ability to help people. And I think if you build wealth and are able, you know, a lot of times young parents ask me like, how do I invest for my kids? Because my parents didn't invest for me and they want to like give their kids money, which I think is great. But when I dig in deeper and say, do you have any debt? Like, what's your income? How much money do you have? Like, all that. Like, they're just flat out broke in debt, have no money. And I was like, you gotta, you gotta fix your own financial situation first. And so you can help more people, including your own children, if you get your own financial situation in order. So for sure, I bought a house. I think it's good to use money 
to your best um, ability to like maximize your own value lifetime. But I think that for most people, that means more financially wise moves so that they can you know be happier. I 100% agree. Jeremy, we have to talk about your Instagram profile. The last portion of this, this is plug time, baby. We <laughs> Okay, finally. <laughs> Since you have everything you need, why do you take the time to educate people on personal finances? I, I you know, I'm I'm just living my life. I'm just, a I'm dude just out trying here to decide what like wake up every day. Like you're living in a van over there, you're you're living your, your life. We're just trying we're trying to figure out like what what we're all here for. And you know, after I sold my company, I suddenly like didn't need a job anymore. And for years, I was basically working every day to afford to eat. Mm -hmm. And now I don't need to do that anymore. And so, but I'm like a tech guy and a startup guy. So I feel like society wanted me to go start another tech company. And I I had a few ideas and I still really get amped about entrepreneurship. And I think that I have the ability to start a really great company again if I wanted to. But um, I just wasn't like excited about that every day when I woke Mm -hmm. up. Um, And I think that, you know, starting a business is like a decade long commitment at least usually. And so if you're not excited about it, like a weekend, um, that's a pretty bad sign. And I think for me, I just don't think I had, you know, with my first business, I had the motivation of being hungry Mm -hmm. to keep me going. But with this new one, I was like, I don't think I, I don't think I could do it, but this space, I like love it. I don't know. It's like, you know, some people love surfing and some people love, uh, I don't know, like uh, rock climbing or rock climbing or is that what you do no i don't know why it came to my mind but (laughs) i actually watch a lot of alex honnold i love Alex. he's like the uh the guy that free sold free sold that guy's a legend like i know i love him i just i know i feel like i feel like we would get along i feel like we both have this kind of like matter of fact way of uh, being yeah personality about a lot of things i know i mean he's putting his life on the line and i'm buying index funds but you know (laughs) teach their own same thing (laughs) Yeah. So basically to answer your question, I just love it. And it pumps me up every day. And like, if just, just this talk with you or like talking to someone who's young, who, who has these questions and like every day I wake up and still love doing it. And so I'm trying to, you know, in, in how we talked about there not being a good enough education around this, trying to build a platform and a community to solve that problem as well as I can, because I like it and I feel growth and progress from doing that. Um, and you know, I think that's like what makes people happy by, you know, being happy and helping people. And I, I hope that that's what I'm doing. I, I certainly get a lot of positive feedback from people who say that this is helpful to them, which makes me happy. Oh, you absolutely are. I can just tell you from my own personal experiences that the discussions from your posts have led to already like fruitful habits for me and my friends because I'll just I will shoot them your posts each day be like hey are you doing this or have you done this yet and yeah so everything that you're doing is having having a ripple effect on I imagine every person that you're helping those people are also pulling their friends into your content to also get help too Thank you. That's amazing. That's like uh, really flattering and exciting. And, uh, you know, I, I hope one day we do integrate this into public schools so that, you know, every young person has an equal shot at getting this stuff. And I'm going to do the best I can to publish it wide, widely, you know, and I'm not this. These aren't my original ideas or anything. I, you know, the, lots like I got this all from books and experience. Um other people are also out there fighting the same good fights. So there's a lot of good people trying to get this this message out, um, but it's it's nice to hear that 
my little corner of the world that in, of my Instagram accounts already having some sort of positive effect. Absolutely. Throw out the handle. What's the handle? Where do you want people to go? <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, I should mention. It's a at Personal Finance Club. PFC, I call it for short. You can find it at personalfinanceclub.com. Um, yeah, Personal Finance Club. Easy, easy guy to Google and search and all that stuff. Love it. Jeremy, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been a blast. Yeah, it has been my pleasure, Nicholas. This is a really great podcast. The best, uh, the best prep work I've ever seen. Amazing. I'll take it. Okay, bye. You have to say bye. Oh, bye. bye. <laughs> that was the episode. You just listened to it. Tune in next week to hear Daniel Niss and Dylan Moffitt, two ER nurses on the front line, talking about their experiences treating COVID patients. We got the deets. Tune in. They're going to talk about the symptoms they experience from becoming COVID positive from treating COVID patients and how we should view COVID moving forward. Uploads every Friday at 6 a.m. Grab yourself a cup of coffee, tune in, and listen or sleep in. Listen to it later. Either way, review. And the real reason you're still here, why was the broom late? It overswept. You hate to see it. Guys, 50 episodes. That's like over 50 hours of time. The good news is if this is the first episode you're listening to, you have over 50 hours of free episodes. And if you really like it, you could donate as low as 99 cents. Tune into the show notes and you can see. Thank you, guys. We appreciate your support and have a great rest of your week. See you next week. Nick Natali Show, Nick Natali Show. It's the Nick Natali Show, Nick Natali Show. It's the Nick Natali Show, Nick Natali Show. It's the Nick Natali Show. Welcome to the Nick Natali Show.